Well, hello, it's Zane Horowitz, New Oregon Poison Center, bringing to you actually the second in only seven years of a December Journal Club. I look back, and our last December Journal Club was the first year we did this in 2007. We also did Christmas plants. So just like every December, you know, you got to watch <laughs> six versions of the Christmas Carol and Charlie Brown's Christmas again. This is like, you know, a replay of a golden oldie. So many of the same articles, in case any of you are keeping track, are reiterated here because they're just such classics. And so we're going to talk about some Christmas plants. Um, as I mentioned, actually, in the first version of this, there's always, there's always that one slow news day and somebody at some TV station gets the idea to go, oh, let's run out of the emergency room with Poison Center and we'll get them to tell us how terrible like poinsettias and mistletoes are, and you know, and but they're not. And we'll find out why here in a second. Um, so we don't want anybody saying that. So before you are tempted... You go on TV and uh, say all sorts of wrong things about these plants. You should listen to our journal club today. So to start us out is our visiting student. Uh, Ashley is going to tell us about two articles about mistletoes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, I have two short articles uh, about uh, mistletoe. Uh, first one is going to be from Clinical Toxicology 1996. It's a retrospective study. They took information from three different poison control centers, one in Kentucky, one in Georgia, one in Indiana, and they pretty much just did a chart review for the years from 1990 to 1993 to look at uh, if there was any truth to the old adage that mistletoe is dangerous and you should keep away from it or not. <laughs> um, so essentially they said that there was really nothing before this. There was a review of 14 cases without symptoms from an elixir brewed from the berries. And that was essentially all there was prior to this point. Uh, so from their collection, they found 92 cases um, of calls in regarding uh, some kind of mistletoe exposure. Uh, four months to four, 42 years was the range and mostly accidental. And of these, only 14 cases were symptomatic, 11 of which could actually be attributed to the mistletoe itself. Um, and... Uh, from that, we had there were six GI upsets, uh, two like drowsiness and eye irritation, uh, and ataxia, and one seizure. Uh, and both the ataxia and the seizure were in uh, younger children, so a two-year-old and a one-year-old. Uh, and um, then they kind of tried to look at what kind of ingestions, like how what amount would be more damaging. Uh, so they found that in terms of the berries, because there's berries and leaves. Uh, for ones that were greater than five berries, a lot of them remained, um, eight of the ten cases remained symptom-free. So only two had any sort of symptoms. Uh, and uh, in the leaf-only ingestions, only three of eleven had um, GI upset, so any kind of symptoms. Interestingly enough, though, their largest ingestion, which was, uh, I think, let us say it was t greater than 20 berries found in emesis, had no symptoms at any point. Uh, they vomited because they were given activated charcoal. Uh, and in terms of the one child who had a seizure, there was an unwitnessed exposure. They had berries and leaves in their crib. So uh, unclear really what caused that. Uh, so in terms of when we saw symptoms, there was uh, at least in six hours, everyone who would become symptomatic had symptoms. Uh, and yeah, not really exciting on the symptom front there. That was pretty much it. Like I said, they didn't really know in terms of how, what the kid got who had a seizure. Um, and that and the rest of them were pretty much mostly GI effects and really minimal as they were. You know, 90, 11 cases out of 92 is pretty low to begin with and then very minimal to begin with. Uh, they were unable to, they were kind of trying to look at if there was a relation to uh, the type of GI decontamination, because they said, first of all, that GI decontamination had no effect really on the outcome, although they didn't really go far too far into it. Uh, but they really, they said they were unable to really kind of look at charcoal versus ipecac versus whatever else in terms of GI decontamination. So they left you kind of hanging because yeah. they only looked at a handful of cases from a couple of poison centers and they kind of walked away with, well, if you take like 60 to 20 berries or four to five leaves, 
Maybe this is in the Ipecac days. Maybe you should get some Ipecac and stuff like that. So right. maybe some of the myths of why this stuff persists go back to articles like this. But in order to answer the bigger question, uh, they looked at all the data a few yeah. years later. Yeah, this is a much larger study. Um, this one was from 1997. It's really only a year later. I don't know uh, how that happened that they decided to do it at the same time, essentially. Uh, this They took information from the American Association of Poison Control Centers, uh, and they looked at a period from 1985 to 1992, and they found a total of uh, 1,754 exposures, uh, of which, just to start off with, 99.2 had no morbidity, and there were zero fatalities in the entire group. Um, so they kind of went into a little bit of history also, so did the other one about what it what the uh, mistletoe is and why possibly there is this uh, predominating uh, thought that it's dangerous. Uh, you know, it's mostly on the East Coast and lower Southwest more. Uh, it's parasitic, which I actually didn't know. It's found on oaks, trees. And apparently, really, the dangerous thing is that, I guess, the European mistletoe version of it is actually dangerous. However, that's not the one that we have here. Um... <laughs> And um, yeah, so, and those that ha the European version has been associated with fatalities, but and that's the one that was associated with all the Christmas they talked right, about, right? Also, the and they Celts just, and the Gauls just kind of, and the Druids. They, they just tacked us on, associated with us Christmas to time. make us feel welcome, and decide to add some poison myths to that as well, I guess. Um, but yeah, so like I said, this was you know over fifteen hundred cases without a single fatality and a pretty low symptomatic rate to begin with. Uh, they kind of broke down a little bit more what kind of people were getting affected. So, uh, kind of unsurprisingly, pediatrics was the vast majority of the exposures at 92.1%. Um, almost all ingested uh, and almost all accidental. Uh, so, and then uh, in the intentional, they're more just for abuse purposes, which was weird, or misuse, I guess. So... Only in uh, 27.8% of the exposures, uh, the specific intention, uh, sorry, 11.1% .1 was it used for suicidal purposes, obviously in a failed manner. <laughs> um, so, yeah. There was a seasonal variation to that. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, seasonal variation in general, too, but yeah. Um, so they actually, this, this, uh, paper, as opposed to the other one, did kind of look at the differences between GDI decontaminations, such as they were, um, although the kind of the predominating theory was still that didn't really have much of an effect, and even sometimes, you know, if they're vomiting from Ipecac, well, yeah, they're vomiting. Um, was it really? Yeah, and this was the 80s when we were doing a lot more of that. So. Right, exactly. So now I don't know, like, half these people. So they said, you know, of the... Initially, asymptomatic people, um, they kind of split into someone who would get decontamination versus not. And uh, essentially, um, regardless, they were still asymptomatic. 1.9% uh, of the not no therapy group had a minor effect. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's without the GI contamination. And uh, 2.6 in the uh, G-contamination, G-I-D contamination effect group had a minor effect, and that was it. So then they looked at the symptomatic ones. Um, so in symptomatic patients, like on initial presentation, uh, they split into a group of, again, no therapy versus uh, G-I-D contamination, and um, again, pretty much no significant difference between the two groups. Um, it's actually almost worse in some of them. Uh, and the moderate effect had more uh, worse effects in, with the GI decontamination group, which I thought was interesting, but not really significant. And there may be a sharding phenomenon. Also, you know, now we do it all on a computer. In the 80s, it was probably like a bubble duct colorant, which is <laughs> what true. we use. And it's easy to, you know, if you're doing major or minor, there's some issues of what really happened back then. Yeah. And I don't know if people considered vomiting a major effect or moderate effect. I don't think it's major, but yeah. maybe they, if you vomited twice, maybe that's a moderate effect. And sure. that's how you got charted. 
So, so it, part of it is the issue of how we collected that yeah. data. Yeah, and even with this uh, questionable data gathering and all the one, all the numbers that Spayo actually followed up with, only 0.9% had a moderate effect, 0.2% with a major quote-unquote effect, but 90.3% uh, regardless of how you're scoring it is uh, more asymptomatic the whole, throughout the whole time. Um, and then they kind of looked at how we're referring patients for treatment, uh, and the predominating theme was too much, essentially. So, you know, 5.3% um, of it was self-referred, can't do anything about that. Uh, and then poison centers themselves referred 13.3% of patients. Uh, and they said that uh, other than the 4.1% of exposures that were intentional, that should always kind of, like we say with everything, have been doing that. Um, the majority of these really didn't need to be, especially when they had the, um, they also, they didn't give great numbers either of where the cutoff was to be concerned of, but, uh, yeah, so the... Yeah, I mean, to look back at the other article, Spiller, and, you know, I, I think you know, the 20 berries and five leaves thing gets mentioned again, but I'm yeah. not really sure that's a really a good line. I, truthfully, right. most of these things are reasonably benign. If you're eating more than, like, 20 berries or a whole plant, I mean, there's something else going on. It's <clears> not an accidental you know, events. It's like somebody's on a, doing something on a bet or a dare or suicidal or something unusual and maybe they ought to be uh, sent in to be evaluated. But, yeah. uh, so, all in all, moral of story, uh, not such the quote-unquote kiss of death that it has reputation of being for, as they mentioned in the article. And uh, unless you're, again, having an intentional uh, ingestion of a lot of things likely to be okay, likely not to need anything, likely not needed to be sent in, and really probably better off just watching for those six hours anyway at home, I guess. Yeah. Which I think we would expect maybe some GI problems, we might call them back. I don't think we're sending yeah. any of these in anymore. I'm just trying yeah. to make sure people realize that they're not really as toxic as they're made out to be. Mm -hmm. Um, they do have that seasonal variation graph where like 99% yeah. of them happen in December, you know, um, it's a couple of January, January. <laughs> but um, old plants still sitting around the house in January. There's a couple in July, I don't know why, but it's like, no, they got no packages from Christmas. Christmas in July, those like auto, you know, selling the cars. Crazy yeah, the right. I don't know if they differentiated on poison index between mm -hmm. the European and the American. As far as how you code it? Yeah. yeah and I, I can't remember. I mean, it's, well, you should, I don't know if the, if the European viscous, viscum grows here, but I assume that everything is, is going to be the American <clears throat> version, so I mean, but unless the, we get a product from overseas. Now they do have the two varieties listed differently. Oh. The coded, they... They have different numbers, right. so it, it's hard to say, and I can't remember. And I don't know how, the, how somebody at home is going to know the difference. I mean, because we rely on them to tell us what they've taken or eaten or chewed on. Well, and now, now I think I get a call and they say mistletoe. I just took, I code it to the American. Yes, yeah, that's, that's the most likely, unless they got something really weird imported. Mm -hmm. But it makes more sense you're going to have American. All right. Well, moving along to another plant that's an ill-deserved reputation is the poinsettia. So uh, our visiting student, Josh, will tell us about that. Okay. So the first article is The Toxicology of Poinsettia by C.W. Wynek and others, published in the Clinical Toxicology in 1978. So basically, these guys did a bunch of experiments with... Uh, rats, rabbits, and guinea pigs to test uh, how toxic the extracts of this plant is. And they showed that it's not very toxic. <laughs> so they go through a long introduction of the plant itself. They mention that this plant is actually named Euphorbia pulcherina wild and uh, it's been uh, historically recognized as a toxic agent and uh, probably for a bunch of uh, mis... Uh, some... Uh, just some articles and other stuff that made it have that reputation. Uh, several people in the 30s sort of published some articles in uh, some sort of naturalist books describing how it could be sort of like a skin irritant. And then there was this other report in uh, the 30s of the death of a two-year-old child following ingestion of poinsettia leaves. Um, eventually, however, it came out that this was sort of a hearsay 
and no one that actually witnessed it was actually the people that gave the report that wound up getting published. Right. I was like even older than that. It was like, way, it was like in Hawaii. I think we pulled yeah. the original yeah. article. Yeah. It was in Hawaii. It was like 1919 or something like that. And there was a dead child and a poinsettia plant next to him. And there was like no other association whatsoever. That's the one only possible like remote exposure. And it's, you know, it's, since then we've been regurgitating that it's dangerous. Right. But you're going to tell us how these guys pretty definitively proved that it's not. Then the rest of the introduction just kind of talking about some of the historical medicinal uses of the plant itself, which aren't probably that important. So then um, they go into sort of the details of their experiments. So I can kind of just jump between the details of the experiments mm -hmm. and the results and just mm -hmm. go through each one individually rather than describing them all at once. So first I just described the preparation of the plant material. Basically they just ground it up in a blender and then suspended it in a water and uh, I think a carboxymethyl cellulose solution. And then, uh, so the first experiment that they did was described as the acute oral toxicity experiment to determine the acute oral LD50. So they took rats and they fed them either green leaves, stem, root, and red bract, and immunofluorescence at various concentrations. And uh, they divided these rats up to either to receive varying uh, concentrations, and they divide them up by male and female, and included a control group also. So they fasted the animals for 24 hours, dosing them, and just, you know, dosed them, and then uh, wound up then uh, killing them, and then autopsying them, and uh, checking them out. So the results of that experiment were that, hold on one second. The acute LD50 data is presented in a table one, and you can see that no animals died. So that was pretty much within 14 days. The necropsy did not reveal any gross pathology in any of the animals. And they were using a lot. They were using grams, grams of the plant per kilogram, like a mouse's weight in poinsettias. Yeah. The next study that they did was the five-day exaggerated oral dosing study. And in this one, they gave them a certain amount of the poinsettia suspension and then uh, dosed them for five days twice a day and let them eat at night and gave them water ad lib. And then this study or this experiment also showed that uh, all of the animals gained a little bit of weight that was really about it. The necropsies performed seven days after the final dosage once again revealed no gross pathology, nor did histological studies of the stomach, liver, duodenum, large intestine, or kidneys. That's why I always gave away to Christmas. Yeah. All those things. So it is. <laughs> <laughs> right there. Then uh, the next day was the, the next experiment was the five-day total diet study. The only difference in this one was that the animals were not allowed to have any food in between the feedings of the poinsettia. And uh, the results of this one was that no deaths resulted in three males and three females. They uh, noted they gained a little bit of weight, but they were a little bit lethargic, and they believed that the actual weight gain was probably due to water retention. And they actually uh, tested the water content of the quadriceps femoralis in the experiment animals and the control animals to double check this. And that was uh, slightly consistent with that hypothesis. Their feet swelled up from too much salt. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, the next study was oral cavity study. They uh, took the latex that the poinsettia plant produces into the oral cavity and they noted that uh, basically it did not induce any demonstrable toxicity. There was no evidence of erythema, edema, bleeding, or choking in any of the animals. Then we move on to rabbits. And the first study they did was the, uh, I believe, the eye irritation study. Yeah, so here they took albino rabbits. They... Uh, put this uh, solution to one of the eyes and leave the other eye as the uh, control for the individual animal. They sort of go through the protocol for this. It seems like it's kind of like a standard way of doing this. And uh, they, uh, following the installation, the eyelids were held closed for two seconds and then held open for 30 seconds. 
The eyelids of the three animals were released after 30 seconds. Their eyes were tested for a local anesthetic action by drawing a pencil point over the scleral surface. So it seems kind of don't do this anymore. Kind of painful yeah. for these poor rabbits. So the results of the actual study, though, were that poinsettia latex evaluated according to the Federal Hazardous Substance Labeling Act and scored according to the method of Dray's was found to be innocuous to the cornea, iris, and conjunctiva. Examination of the eyes with fluorescein and ultraviolet revealed no ocular damage. The latex did not induce a local anesthetic action either. So then uh, moving on to the next one is acute dermal toxicity. This one is also done on rabbits. And apparently there's a protocol for this also that existed back then where they sort of like uh, shave the rabbits and then abrade the skin and uh, then have a portion where it's abraded and non-abraded on albino rabbits. And uh, they uh, yeah, and then they basically just put this uh, poinsettia extract onto these animals and uh, basically test to see if there's uh, any irritation. And I mean, there's just a whole protocol about wrapping it with double thickening plastic wrap and make sure it's secure for a certain amount of time. And they immobilized these rabbits for 24 hours, which time food and water was not made available. Then uh, the results of this one was that uh, this did reveal a minor irritating action of poinsettia suspension in distal water. Uh, it reached size, it subsides, excuse me, in a 36 hour period. And uh, I just want to know, since poinsettia suspension administered via orogastric intubation did not exhibit this toxicity, it is not known whether the poinsettia suspension in distilled water applied to the skin was absorbed percutaneously. And the next study they did was a primary, or, yeah, primary irritation study. This one's also done with albino rabbits. Uh, and it's done under conditions of occlusion and non-occlusions with uh, denuded areas of skin as described in the previous section. So basically, three albino rabbits, two males, one female, had their area application, the gauze. So the only difference with this one was that, um, I believe, they just continually to check. This was done for a longer period of time. The study was interrupted on day six and 12 for removal of new hair growth, and they just kept monitoring these basically. And uh, this one, the daily application of poinsettia water suspension 14 sick days in occluded and non-occluded albino rabbits revealed that poinsettias exhibit a moderate to severe irritating action manifested by significant erythema and minimal edema. The most prominent responses were observed on days 5, 10, and 14. So basically, if you put it on them every day for 14 days, it becomes quite irritating to the skin. And the final two skin studies they did. One was a photosensitivity study. And these ones are done with guinea pigs. And once again, they clipped the skin of uh, several, several guinea pigs, male and female. And then they used a commercial depilatory agent, thoroughly washed and uh, caged for a 24-hour healing period. Had some control guinea pigs. And then uh, they put the uh, solution on and then they treated the areas were then exposed to sunlight from a distance of 60 centimeters for the following periods of time, one day and three days for two minutes, so on and so forth. The bottom line was there was that um, exposure to ultraviolet light resulted in a photosensitivity reaction characterized by erythema and blistering. And the final test was the skin sensitivity test for the possible skin sensitizing action utilizing the patch test. One milliliter of the aqueous solution was applied to band-aids, which was then applied to the denuded and abraded skin of two male and two female guinea pigs. And they had some controls. Ten days later, the last patch received the following patch. And they determined that this patch was a negative reaction. And on this one, I'm not actually quite sure what this study was actually what the skin sensitivity, skin sensitization referred to in this study. I think several of these were sort of standard yeah. sort of tests that were for cosmetics mm -hmm. at the time. So if you want a bit of new 
liquid cosmetic product in the market. These are kind of the things that you went through back then in the 70s and horrible as they are uh, to do things through rabbits and pigs right. and things. That's kind of what they went to prove that they were going to cause a rash or something before they marketed it. But it's interesting they went through the same thing with these poinsettias and basically showed it's not only yeah. doesn't cause you can eat it every day and stick it in your eye and probably unless you mash it on your skin continuously for days on end it doesn't really cause a lot of right. problems it certainly doesn't certainly kill you as the one child in 1919 probably was not killed by it either so i mean the end of the article is just a short discussion but i mean i think the results kind of just speak for themselves so not very toxic did you note that in order to uh simulate the you know the oral toxicity that they did not get a child would have to ingest a 50 pound child would have to ingest approximately 1.25 pounds of poinsettia leaves to surpass the above experimental dose equivalency with the rats hmm. so unlikely anyone's ever going to do that challenge accepted <laughs> <laughs> all right so we always say that rats and rabbits and mice and everything are not men so uh, we have to go back to uh, yeah, sort of the trifecta of the Ed Edward Kredzlik, uh articles to prove that Christmas is indeed safe. So how did he do looking back at uh, all the plants in the national database? Right. So these guys in uh, 1996, they uh, looked at the American Association of Poison Control Center's database. And uh, there was a thing called the Toxic Exposure Surveillance System. Is that not that still exists in the same current form? Uh, it's been renamed it's been as renamed. NPDS now, but it used to be called TESS, yes. But they got all of the information they could, which was uh, 849,575 plant exposures at the time from the years of 1985 to 1992. They imported these into a computer system that and all these results they know at that time came on electromagnetic computer tape. They were stored in a relational database system and then electronically analyzed using a DEC 5000 workstation. And, and it was probably like subterranean yeah. giant <laughs> spinning disks. <laughs> and you know, and that gave them 22,000. Now, now you can do this on your iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> and that gave them 22,793 cases of poinsettia exposures to analyze. Mm -hmm. Um, so at this time, these things were categories or coded as uh, no effect, minor effect, moderate effect, major effect, fatal, and unknown. Uh, so the, basically the results, they broke them down according to, you know, sort of what time of year these things happened, what was the age group, and then uh, what was the sort of effect according to their scoring system. There's a table there that shows that... Uh, you know, they were also broken down by ingestion, dermal exposure, and all exposures. Ingestion accounted for 22,000 of them, and dermal exposures, 1,129. So most were ingestions. Well, most, not surprisingly, happened in children. And uh, no effect was recorded in 37.8. Uh, minor was 3.0. Moderate was 0 0.05. And there was one major effect, which was... 0.04%, and then 55% of them were just not even followed at all, so just considered non-toxic at the time. And then the dermal exposures were, uh, minor effect was 37.5, uh, minor was 9.7, moderate 0 0.5, and non-toxic, not followed, was 44.9%. So, not very toxic, and they do note that the one, uh, major effect that was recorded for the ingestions is actually they reviewed the chart and actually determined that that one was actually uh, coded incorrectly and should not have actually been coded as that. So, so, yeah. so if they were going to do it nowadays, they probably would have tossed that out of the database. So it's, uh, I mean, right. It depends on how they wanted to do it or not. But so, so it seems like there are no major fatal effects mm -hmm. and really even moderate effects are in the grand minority yeah. of and it's cons consistent with the other study that showed the dermal effects are probably greater than the ingested effects also. Mm -hmm. So pretty much the result of this study. Excellent. And they just note that um, the limitations of their studies, and that's about it. 
Yeah, so uh, both poinsettias, clearly poinsettias far more so than even uh, mistletoe are safe without any long-term um, plants. For those of you who like trivia, the plant was named after Joel Poinsett, who was the American ambassador to Mexico, and found it growing down there and brought it home for Christmas. Um, so a little bit of trivia for you. So what about those pesky berries uh, that come up around this time of year? Uh, Julian. The, the article asks, those pesky berries, are they a source of concern? It comes out of Pittsburgh and uh, was published in 1998. This uh, starts with an introduction. Um, it mentions that plant exposures are fourth most uh, common call to poison information centers, or at least at, at that time uh, that was the case, and uh, may refer to exposures to leaf stems, roots, or berries, and uh, that exposures to unidentified berries and um, Unidentified is kind of key here because it, obviously we're talking about a verbal description of an exposure. So we're basing our whatever the information we provide on a, a description by a caller. Um, but the, those represent the 11th most common of the plant-related calls uh, to poison centers. And the question is, are exposures to unidentified berries associated with morbidity and mortality? And can these berry exposures be managed at home or do we have to send them in for medical evaluation? And uh, the, the methods um, essentially use poison center data, all berries, uh, berry calls, so uh, that were unidentified by common or formal botanical nomenclature, um, that were reported uh, to poison centers between 85 and 94, and those were extracted again using TESS, or the exposure surveillance system, as it was called at that time. And uh, essentially, multiple data fields were extracted just to try to gather information on the exposure. And there were 11,237 reported incidents. And as expected, children under the age of six accounted for most of those calls, 88.5% of those unidentified berries, berry exposures. And unintentional, again, as you can imagine, especially since these are kids, were responsible for most of them. So 99.3% of those reports were unintentional. Um, and the remainder of, of those calls were intentional with a s similar distribution, so spread fairly evenly across age groups. And uh, there was some look, uh, attempt to look at decontamination, for example, using emesis or activated charcoal or cathartics, and there really wasn't great data to separately evaluate each of these uh, techniques. Um, in the no therapy groups of folks who did not receive any kind of decontamination, 91.2% uh, remained asymptomatic versus 95% in the decontamination group. And progression to minor effects occurred in 8.7% of the no therapy group versus 5.7% of the decontamination group. And again, data was, was too limited to really come to any conclusions. There were no fatalities, and there was uh, just one major uh, outcome that was uh, noted to be an infant female uh, that was treated medically, but um, not a whole lot of specifics there. And then moderate outcomes in 26 individuals out of that some 11,000. Uh, eight patients uh, with moderate outcomes were admitted for medical or psychiatric care. Eight were treated and released, and uh, 10 patients ended up refusing referral to a, a medical center. Hospitalization occurred in 973 patients, so 8.6%. And uh, a small amount of those, less than 1%, were admitted. Most of those were to psych. And uh, the remaining 930 patients, or 8.3% of all of those exposures, were treated and released. And uh, we have a, a figure here uh, that, that just identifies a geographic region and kind of looks uh, north versus south of uh, berry exposures here, and um, also plots those out by month. And what we see here is kind of increasing exposures uh, in, throughout, uh, from the spring through the summer, and a big spike in September, again, with more exposure in the north and the south. And um, so that 85%, sorry, 88.5% of exposure occurred in June through October, so essentially summer and into the fall months. So the, in summary, most of these exposures were associated only with minimal morbidity, no mortality, and that GI decontaminated uh, decontamination therapy, so gastric emptying or dilution of fluids, 
but no real substantial benefit over just observing these patients uh, alone. And uh, that the general conclusion of the article is that observation without medical referral is appropriate in asymptomatic patients unless there is a high index of suspicion that the berry is very toxic. And again, it seems most of these are going to be difficult to identify um, over, the, over the phone. And then more specifically in the second paper, is EU really poisonous to you? Uh, same folks out of Pittsburgh, but took a more specific look at the taxa species, or the commonly referred to as U plants, Y-E-W, and that have the reputation of being inordinately toxic. And as sort of the theme of the day, the question is figuring out if that's actually the case. And notes that human case reports chronicle the precipitous course of fatal and near-fatal ingestions of the U fruit, often referred to as berries. Really, it's a, a single ovoid seed that's surrounded by a scarlet-colored fleshy tissue, so it ends up looking like a, a berry. And much of this kind of concern about uh, fatalities is related to livestock and uh, other animals, and uh, is likely related to very large ingestions, obviously, by animals that are just eating fairly large amounts of this stuff. And toxicity is attributed to uh, alkaloids, especially taxine A and B. And this also very similarly, so I'll kind of skim through, it's a very similar approach. AAPCC national data, 1985 to 1994, and then looked at um, extracting exposures to taxis species. And um, there were uh, 11,000 or so exposures here. Again, mostly kids under six years of, old, uh, of age uh, in the 92.7% uh, of exposures. Again, mostly unintentional. There were no fatalities. And 92.5 of them had no effect at all. A smaller percent, 7% experienced minor effects. And there were 30 people who had moderate effects. Five of those patients were admitted to the hospital. Four medical, only one actually of these was site. And six were treated and sent home. And uh, there were some folks who self-referred. Um, that was 11% of patients. And admission occurred in 6.3% of those patients. 69 were medical and nine were psych. And the symptoms were essentially GI complaints uh, predominating there. And the discussion just goes on to say that taxis, it's an ornamental shrub. It's, it's a very pretty um, little bush and uh, is the 18th most common plant exposure. And in severe cases, particularly, as I mentioned, in animals who are eating a ton of this stuff, it's going to be GI upset, um, but could result in seizures, hypertension, and cardiac arrhythmias. Again, likely dose-dependent. And it's really the veterinary literature that describes the ingestion of very large amounts of and one thing they do note is that the fruit of the yewberry, or quote berry, can be bitter um, during um, much of the maturation process, and that may actually limit the amount consumed by children. Well, have you ever seen the yewberry? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The stone, they look like a stuffed olive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And that stone in there is yeah. really hard, and it would be unlikely. I've never seen a child <clears throat> able to bite it into the stone, and the areola around it, which is what that fleshy part is mm -hmm. called, is actually non-toxic. So and they just eat that part. That's the part they eat, because the, the berry you'd have, or the st I call it a stone, because that's what, you'd have to break it apart with a hammer yeah. to break it open, because it's it's like a piece of rock. So they're exactly. kind of shooting it. Sweet, sweet, the red thing that gets you know. Yeah. 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 Birds eat their reels in my house all the time. I never remember like crushing those like they used to do with peach pits, like yeah. crushed peach pits. The one in my, the one I have in my house, at my yard, is so hard that you couldn't crush it. Mm. It's, it's literally like a rock. Mm. So, and that's the most, it's a very common variety that I have. And hopefully we have not been sending any of those in no. nowadays, yes. So I'm assuming the animals are just eating the whole, swallowing the whole thing. The birds, I know, eat their reels. I don't know if they eat the bird, seed or not. Yeah. Hmm. I, a cow or something. I think what the cows are doing is eating the leaves. The, mm -hmm. Just eating the, the whole plant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm just discriminating. It's, it's like a conifer. It's a conifer. <laughs> it's a little... Yeah. They're about that long. Yeah. 
So right. there, there were just a, a, a very few, um, some cardiovascular effects were mentioned in three, three reports, tachycardia, hypertension, and hypertension, but it was such a tiny little sample of three patients out, 11,000, that it was really hard to kind of extrapolate any good uh, information from there. So that's, that's uh, really so yet a, another group of berries and plants sometimes seen this time of year that we don't necessarily have to worry too much about. Leave them out. To kind of round up some of the things, I have one article about holiday plants, just focusing on the things we've missed. Matt will tell us about one or two other little tidbits here. Close up all our loose ends with all our holiday plants. This is a review in 2012 in the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine on kind of several different holiday plants. I'll kind of only mention the ones we haven't talked about so far. So one we haven't talked about is the holly. Um, very common this, this time of year. There's two different times, uh, types, the U.S. holly and the English holly. It's kind of that classic holiday um, plant, the green, kind of very spiky, uh, waxy green leaves and the, the bright scarlet red berries. Um, it's a shrub that can grow up to 15 meters tall, and the berries are usually about a centimeter in diameter. Uh, there's also a South American <coughs> holly um, that is quite different to the U.S. holly, and that the South American one actually has is, is made for a tea and actually has caffeine in it. Um, the hollies here have actually made up uh, the third most highest plant exposure cause, at least that was in 2010. Looking at the plant itself, the leaves don't have any toxin in them, but the berries do. They have the saponin toxin, uh, which is known to uh, cause hemolysis and red blood cells and also increase mucosal permeability in, in small intestines, and so that could you know, potentially lead to some GI symptoms. Um, but kind of looking at ingestions most ingestions are completely asymptomatic. Uh, with large ingestions, there has been nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. And then very rarely, um, uh, case report uh, has been medriasis, hyperthermia, and drowsiness. They quote kind of a pair of twins that got into uh, the holly berries, were found <coughs> vomiting over 40 times, kind of drowsy. Um, they give a couple numbers, not, not entirely clear where they get the numbers, but for symptoms, they say for adults, you'd have to eat about 20 to 30 berries, uh, and then kids about five holly berries to get symptomatic. But when actually looking uh, at a study of kind of home observation and kids sent to the hospital and got Ipecac, the kids who got Ipecac obviously vomited, and the, the kids who were left at home, they had no symptoms. Uh, so probably better off at home. Um, <laughs> yes. If they do manage to make it to your ER without, you know, Ipecac and they are vomiting, it would be reasonable to obviously treat them with antibiotics. But other than that, um, it seems like they're most likely going to be asymptomatic. And the other two plants I could talk about are one's the bittersweet and the other's the Jerusalem cherry, both out of the um, uh, genus Solanum. Um, so the bittersweet is also called uh, a woody nightshade. It's a perennial vine. It's got uh, purplish yellow flowers and, and red berries as well. And then the Jerusalem cherry is uh, also called the Christmas orange. That's found mainly in Hawaii and the Gulf Coast. Uh, it's got yellowish red uh, or orange berries. The toxin in these are found in the fruit. Uh, it's a solanine uh, toxin. And that's thought to alter mitochondrial potassium and, and calcium channels. Um, clinically, what you'd see with these are uh, GI upset, uh, abdominal pain, and then there are um, you know, reports of salivation, bradycardia, tachycardia, hypotension, alter mental status, mainly in kids. And they report here that those symptoms can last for, for days. Um, Again, they, they list one case report. This was 1948 in the BMJ of a child, uh, nine years old, who died apparently after ingesting. But again, you know, there's not much uh, 
corroborating uh, that if there's actually an, an ingestion or not. Um, but that on autopsy did have lesions in the, in the GI tract. Um, and then there was series, case series of 319 patients that had exposure um, to these plants. 295 of them were, were less than 10. Basically, none needed hosp hospitalization, so very mild uh, symptoms. Besides the solanine uh, toxin, they also can have uh, dolcomerine, uh, which, which can cause anticholinergic symptoms, um, rarely. Um, again, you know, most likely to have very minimal symptoms, but if they do make it to your ER, it's going to be fluids, antiemetics, um, and they mention if they're floridly anticholinergic, that, you know, phytostigmines would not be un unreasonable, but that would be very much the exception uh, to the rule. So once again, most flowering and ornamental plants very, very low toxicity and no need, of course, to send them in. So just to provide some counterpoint to all that, I found one plant which is called the snowdrop, Galanthus nivalis. Um, it's actually not used around Christmas, but it's a plant that's associated with candle moss, which I didn't know what that was until I'm reading this article from the Medical Toxicology of Natural Substances by Don Barcelo, which is a great reference for plants and other natural toxins. And um, it's been used itself for pain and neurologic disorders since the times of Homer. Uh, they call the plant molly, which I don't know, gives it an interesting name nowadays, <laughs> as an antidote to the potions of the Encantress Circe. Hmm. So Circe's poisons included belladonna, also a solanaceae plant, or atropine belladonna, or datorium stramonium, which we all know is an uh, anticholinergic drug. So this drug probably has some cholinergic effects, which in fact it does. It's actually an acetylcholinesterase-containing plant. And Homer, in the Odyssey, may have been the first recorded use of this to reverse muscarinic symptoms, um, where he has a little excerpt from that. Um, it grows through the Middle East, Turkey, Iran, the Caucasus. It was introduced in Great Britain during the medieval period when most of these other druid things that we now continue to do have <laughs> persisted. Sir Francis Assisi called it the snowdrop as an emblem of hope, and the appearance of the flower begins the end of the winter, and therefore it occurs in early February, around February 2nd, which we now call Groundhog's Day, what they call Candlemas. And that's where it, uh, it was used as a local Caucasian, Caucasian villages from the Caucasus to treat polio at one point in the 1950s and started being researched in Bulgaria in the uh, 1950s and they extracted from it the antagonist galantamine, which was eventually released in this country, was released in Bulgaria as nivolin in the 50s and then in the 1990s it was approved by the FDA to treat Alzheimer's disease. In this country. So the plant itself is snowdrop, also called candle moss bell, also called February fair maids. Give you an idea when it occurs. There's a lot of season here. It's got three long outer tepals or leaves and three inner greener tepals, and it almost always blooms on February 2nd or Groundhog's Day. That's a very beautiful white <laughs> flower that's associated with it. And our master gardener, Chris <laughs> Brands, by the way, for one of our poison setter spies, is here. She'll Given his background, so it grows here as well. Mentions of the all the places in the United States that it grows, northeastern United States and Washington, and obviously Oregon, it grows well. It's got solitary white flowers. It's belonged tradition of folk medicine, and galantamine is actually approved pharmaceutical for Alzheimer's disease. How well it works for that, so we're called into question. So galantamine is present in several lily alkaloids that all have anticholinesterase activity. It counteracts the effects of atropine, hyoscyamine. This compound has greater affinity for the human erythrocyte acetylcholinesterase than the plasma acetylcholinesterase, and therefore probably has about 10 times greater human brain acetylcholinesterase uh, activity than peripheral. It makes it a pretty good centrally acting agent for delivering cholinergic um, therapy. Um, it's a long-acting, 
and selective and reversible competitive inhibitor of acetylcholinesterase. It potentiates, obviously, cholinergic nicotinic transmission and also may modulate nicotinic acetylcholinergic receptors as well. Crosses the blood-brain barrier. And as far as dose response, we talk about, in a study of 10 medical students <laughs> who were administered 2 milligrams of scopolamine IV and then subsequently got IV galantamine at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, it completely reversed their drowsiness, their disorientation, their visual hallucinations, and their delirium within 5 or 10 minutes. And I was like, whoa. So I had to find that study. So it was indeed, this was published in JAMA in 1977. Um, it was actually not done, even in those days in the United States, it was done in Lebanon. And they didn't, in fact, take 10 healthy male medical students who volunteered to do the study. They all got, well, it was probably a reasonable dose of scopolamine IV, which was actually used in anesthesia, I'm not sure, still at that time, but it was still part of some anesthetic packages up through the late 50s and 60s. They got two milligrams of scopolamine. They got disoriented and hallucinated over the next 40 minutes. And then they got galanthamine, which is a drug that was approved in Bulgaria about the time, IV, so 0.5 milligrams per kilo, so you know, about 50 milligrams or so. And they all got better, you know, pretty quickly. And they show one patient, like, sleeping in this picture, and then a few minutes later, his eyes are open. They actually did EEGs on these on these folks, on two of them. Then a complete normalization of their EEGs from this sort of sleepy background, drowsiness to this normal state um, as well. And this was a very brief report in saying how it could be a great anticholinergic drug because it uh, blocks uh, cholinesterases. So... It's available to us. We've often debated, including this morning, about whether or not what we would use when all the physostigmine in the world stops being made. And we've, we, we've had a shortage of physostigmine, so this may be thing. And at least 20, 30 years ago, it was used intravenously, and it seemed to be just fine in these medical students. And what better way to achieve science than to have your medical students volunteer in order to pass stuff we don't do anymore. But there you have it, so have a good and a merry holiday, and you can eat all the plants you want, although I don't know about the snowberry. Save that for Groundhog's Day, and make sure there's a toxicologist nearby to rescue you with atropine if need be. So until next year, we'll see you uh, then. <laughs>